0: There exists a love far greater than we will ever understand. A love prophesied for ages. I love that video, don't you? Wow, what a powerful story. Happy Easter, everybody. So glad you're here today. We had a Saturday night service, a service last night at uh, the Sugarland campus here. And it, we had about 2,000 at that service. The entire place was packed out. And it was just wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. But I started thinking last night, well, is there anybody going to be there on on Easter Sunday? But here you are. And I'm so glad. Thank you for being being here. Uh, They finally made the decision in 1948. 1948, they finally made the decision to destroy a beautiful little town called Flagstaff, Maine. They were going to flood that valley and put in a hydroelectric plant, and so the town had to go. Now, that town was actually dated all the way back to the Revolutionary War, 175 years old, and it was a beautiful, wonderful place, but they said, you got two years. In those two years, either you move your house or you abandon your house, but you have to be gone. And over the course of the next 24 months, the most unbelievable thing happened. That town literally deteriorated in front of their eyes. And it was left in shambles. John Maxwell really said it right when he said, Where there is no hope for the future, there's no power for the present. Hope is that powerful in our life. We've got to have hope. That's what gets us up in the morning. It's It's what fuels our life. And there may be some in this room say, boy, my hope is gone. I want to talk to you about the subject of hope today. Eunice James, in her driveway, had a puddle of oil that had seeped out of the car. You've seen those puddles of oil right there in the driveway. And when the sun hit that puddle of oil just right, it created a prism and there was sort of a a, a rainbow, pretty rainbow that would go across that puddle. So her three-year-old little grandson was visiting, he was outside playing, and suddenly he burst into the house and he said, Nana, come fast, there's a dead rainbow in the driveway. (laughs) And maybe, maybe that's how you're feeling. Some things in your life, some hopes and dreams that you had, it seems like maybe hope is leaking out. I want to talk to you about the subject of hope. We need Easter. Easter is all about hope. And in fact, that is exactly what Basil Hume said when he made this statement. He said, the greatest gift of Easter is hope. It gives us a confidence in God and His ultimate triumph that nothing can shake. It is really true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ literally changed everything. Every man or woman that has ever come and talked to me and said to me, I don't believe in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every single one, not one of them, not one of these individuals had ever done any investigation of the evidences, of the evidences of the resurrection. They just made an assumption more of a, well, it's just too hard to believe, so I don't believe it. But even the greatest critics of Christianity and of the resurrection, when they study the evidences, they say that they are stunned at how strong and how convincing they are. And some of these critics come to know Christ as Savior and write books about, you cannot believe what I discovered when I went through the actual evidence. I want to talk to you about the resurrection, I guess you're surprised, of Jesus Christ today on Easter Sunday because the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that what he said about God, he said about himself and us and salvation, how do we come into relationship with God? The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that what he said was true. And so this morning, I want us to look at one of those stories of the resurrection, and it's found in the Gospel of Luke and chapter 24. Now before this story begins to play out, before it emerges, some things have already happened in the story. For instance, Mary Magdalene and some of the women, the Scripture says, including Mary the mother of Jesus, have already gone to the tomb, and they have seen that the stone is rolled away, and they have gone into the tomb, and they see there is nobody there. The tomb is totally empty. And before they leave that scene, they said, they testified that they saw collectively this angel that said to them, he is not here, he is risen as he said he would. They came back and they told the disciples, we went to the tomb, the stone was rolled away, it was empty, we saw this angel, and immediately Peter and John run for the tomb. They get there and the stone is rolled away and they look inside the tomb and no one's there. And they come back to the other disciples and they say, is it possible? Could this have actually happened? Two of the followers of Jesus who were not two of the disciples, two of the apostles, just two of the followers of Jesus that were in the room said, no, I am not believing this. We're not buying this. In fact, I've had enough. And they packed up all their stuff and they said, we're going home. And they walked home to the seven miles to their house from Jerusalem. They said, we're done with this. And that's when this story actually begins. Now, before we get into the story, you need to know the other parts. Jesus did not just appear to a handful of people. The accounts are at least 500. Over 500 different people saw him alive. And second of all, he didn't just make an appearance or appearances on Easter Sunday. He made appearances for the next 40 days for the next 40 days and he he uh, in, encountered the disciples over and over and over and over again not just once or twice and in those encounters he explained to them what the, the resurrection was about what the the cross was about what now God wanted them to do with all of this and I will tell you Even the critics against Christianity now admit it is obvious that the disciples believed that Jesus was alive because not any other explanation explains their behavior afterwards. Every single one of them went to their death. Martyrs' deaths only because they would not deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they couldn't deny it. So with all that in mind, Let's take a look at this story in Luke chapter 24 and beginning in verse 13. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you just a visitor in Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have been happening these days? Easter is not the time in which we look for God, it is the time that God comes looking for us. I love the story. There's so many incredible things that are unexpected that are happening in the story. And three things in particular that I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is simply this. That Jesus pursues us even when we're running the other way. Here is Jesus and he is suddenly appeared, here he is, and he's come alongside these two uh, followers of Christ as they're walking along. I'm totally convinced, and I, that they are not allowed to know who he is quite yet, I'm totally convinced that both of these individuals had been eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. I know that John was the only of one of the disciples that was around the cross because these were all wanted men, but there were other Christ followers there around that cross and I believe these two were there and they saw the beaten Jesus, whipped Jesus, abused Jesus. They saw what they did to him and as they nailed his feet and his hands to the cross they saw the agony that he was going through, the torture that he was experiencing and they heard the words, it is finished. That phrase, it is finished, is only one Greek word, tetelestai, which means in the Greek, it is paid in full. Jesus knew what he was doing on the cross. He knew what this cross meant. He knew why he was there. And at the last of all of the ordeal, he said, tetelestai, it is paid in full. And then he died. These disciples saw it. They heard his words. They saw what happened. They saw he was dead. And when he was dead, when he died, you've got to imagine they were standing there thinking, come on, come on, perform a miracle, come down from the cross. But when he died, all their hope died with him. they were so discouraged they were so disappointed they were so downhearted they walked away they wanted to leave jerusalem i guarantee you but they couldn't leave jerusalem not for the next couple of days because it's the passover they were not allowed they had to stay there all through the weekend they hated every moment of it you got to imagine and there they were probably with other christ followers but they were enduring the weekend waiting Sunday morning we're going to get out of here on Sunday morning but before they could get out of there on Sunday morning all of a sudden knock at the door there is Mary Magdalene and we you cannot believe what has happened and there goes J- Peter and John and then they come back could it be could he ha- be alive? could he have risen from the dead and they said no we're not buying this we've had enough. We're hurt enough. We're sad enough. We're not going any further. And they picked up everything. And on the road to Emmaus, we're going home, they went. What is amazing to me about the story is in verse 15, it says that Jesus drew near. The phrase he drew near was one Greek word that meant, that literally translated, he overtook them as though he were pursuing them. Because he was pursuing them. And by the way, he's pursuing several in this room. He's pursuing you. maybe nobody else knows but you but there are several in this room in your heart you have been distancing yourself from god for a while part maybe of it is you're so busy your life so full you got so many things going on i don't have time god i don't have time for you right now i don't have time for church i don't have time for you god and but one day when i do i'll look you up i'll check in when i get some time But for others in this room, what is going on is you're just flat mad at God. You needed him to do something. You had already decided, this is what I need. This is when I need it. This is how I need it. And he didn't do it. You felt like he didn't come through for you. You feel like he failed you. And in your heart, there is uh, an anger, maybe a bitterness that has begun to emerge in you. And the truth is, you are pushing God away. You've been for a while, and maybe nobody else knows. Maybe they do. But there's a distance, and you want it. And for others, it's just flat sin. There's some things that you are doing. There's some behavior that you are having, and you already know it's wrong. You already know it's wrong. And God's Spirit keeps speaking into your heart, don't do this. It's going to turn out badly for you. Don't do this. And you keep pushing Him away. And whatever the reason, you've been distancing yourself from Him. And here you are, Easter Sunday. Come on, I'm at church on Easter Sunday. Yeah, but Mama said you were going to be at church on Easter Sunday. So here you are. But you didn't really want to come. Really? But here's the truth. Jesus is pursuing you because he loves you too much to see you walk away. There is something that I want you to notice. These two people that are involved in the story, I love it. I love these two people that are involved. One day when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a conversation with these two. One of them is named Cleopas, and the other is, who knows, somebody Now, there are some who say, well, that, the, the other person not named must be Cleopas's wife. Maybe that's true. Maybe not. We don't know. Well, the only thing we know about these two people is that they're in the inner circle. That's all we know. And we know they're in the inner circle because they know about the resurrection way early. And the only way they could have is if they were in the inner circle with these disciples. That's the only way they could have. That's all we know of them and I'm going to tell you in a moment why I love it. There is in Florence, Italy, a museum. I've never been there, but I'm told a museum. In fact, I looked it up. There is a museum of the Renaissance, of art of the Renaissance period in Florence, Italy, and apparently it's just a wonderful place. All the great artists, of the Renaissance period, all the great artists, the most beautiful paintings that you could ever see in your life, all that talent, and all of it has been brought together into that one museum, and you go from room to room, from wall to wall, and you see the most beautiful art. I love art, and I, you, many of you do too, and you would go into there, and you'd want to stay a long time just to see the talent of these individuals. But when you get to the last wall, you're shocked because and the last wall right there, the only thing on the wall is an empty frame. It's just an empty frame. And then you're told you can actually go behind the wall and put your face through the hole in the wall into that frame <laughs> so that the frame is you. And the whole idea is this. And now, you are part of the story of the Renaissance. And that's the idea. And when I see these two guys, these two individuals, and especially the who knows person, I sort of feel like that that's the invitation to go behind the wall and we can put our self into this story. And here's the reason why I say it. When it comes to Peter and John and the other disciples, I have a hard time identifying with these guys. They're out of my league. In fact, I'd go down 10 more leagues and I'm, they're still out of that league for me. I, I'm just, I don't relate to Peter. Are you kidding? John? But this story sort of lifts me up because. I can see myself in this story, Cleopas and whoever. And what this says to me is that Jesus didn't just appear to the big guys, but he appeared to the nobodies. In fact, if you think about it, he spent more time with these two on the road to Emmaus, more actual clocking in time than he spent with the disciples on Easter Sunday. And I look at that and I say, what that tells me is I actually matter to God and so do you. And here's what I want to say to you. Okay, there is this separation between you and God and there is some justification you feel in your heart for it. But I want you to know that Jesus today is pursuing you and that you matter to him. And that he wants a relationship with you. The story not only is revealing that kind of thing, but the answers the question of why does he want a relationship with me. And, and it's this, that Jesus wants to be the hope of your life and of your future. Listen to what happens now in the story. Jesus now has encountered these two. And he asks the question, what has happened in Jerusalem that has made you all upset. And I thought about the story and I thought, why didn't he just say, hey guys, it's me. I'm Jesus. Why did he do that? Why did he go through this? No, he didn't do that. What he did was say, what's going on in your life? What's made you all upset? He has invited them to open their heart. And they do. It pours out like a flood. And they begin to tell him how disappointed they are, how discouraged they are, how disappointed they are in Jesus. And they don't know. They're telling Jesus. And here is the Prince of Heaven, the Son of God, the Lord of all of the universe, and very humbly and patiently, he's listening to all their objections and all their complaints as they explain all their misconceptions of who Jesus was to be. Listen to what they say in verse 21, Luke 24, 21. We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel, but all that's gone because Jesus is dead. What they didn't understand is the only way they could be redeemed is by Jesus dying. The whole, the word redeem means to buy back. And the concept is this in Scripture, that we have so given our heart over to sin that, that, that we have now become enslaved to it. And that we must be bought back from the enslavement of our own sin. And the only way to do it is to pay the price for that sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. There is a penalty to sin. And the only way that we could pay the penalty is with our own death Are the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, Jesus dying for us. And the Bible says that God took all my sin, all your sin, all of our sin, and placed our sin on Jesus. And what Jesus was doing on that cross was dying for my sin. My sin nailed him to the cross, and so did yours. And what they didn't understand is, is that if he didn't die, they wouldn't then have any hope. But they didn't understand that. And so, here they are. They are so downcast that Jesus is dead. And right there standing with them, talking to them, is Jesus. Do you see the irony of this story? And here's what I'm asking. To see the irony going on in yours. Because... We have some of the same issues. We we have things that happen that we're not happy about that we are so disappointed with. It didn't turn out the way I wanted. I had this whole plan put together. I had this whole thing that I wanted to have done. It didn't happen. God, what is wrong with you? Didn't you understand the right thing? God, you let me down. There is a... There was a a poem a few decades ago, and some of you will recognize and others never have heard it. There was a poem that became very popular a few decades ago, and this is Resurrection Sunday, so I'd like to resurrect the poem if you don't mind. And I'm going to ask you if you would just, even if you've heard it, act like you haven't, okay? (laughs) And for many of you, you've never have, and listen to what it says. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed that he was walking along the beach with the Lord, And across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. And when the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand, and he noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. And he also noticed it happened at the very lowest and saddest times of his life. This really bothered him. And he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said if I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I've noticed during the most troublesome times of my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand. How could you have left me when I needed you the most? And the Lord replied, my son, my precious child, I would never leave you. During the times of trial and suffering, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then I carried you. And if the fog would lift and that, that which now seems so, so wrong and so not understandable, and I don't get this at all. If the fog would lift, if the veil would be taken away, if somehow we were able to open the curtain and look what's on the other side, we would see there is God. He has not left us and forsaken us. He has been with us and moved and cared for us and carried us. Every step... We had this plan. This is the way it ought to be. This is what I want you to do. And he said, I actually have a better plan. And I'm asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust me. But between now and when the fog lifts, okay, go ahead. Tell him everything you're feeling. Tell him all the hurts and misconceptions and go ahead and tell him because the bible says in hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 jesus understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do yet he did not sin i want you to remember this i want you to take this home with you if there's anything you get get this jesus is pursuing you And when hope seems gone, know this. You have a Savior who comes down into your path and walks beside you and listens to your broken dreams and your lost hopes. And I'm asking you this morning, would you reopen your heart? And if you reopen your heart, you will discover that Jesus can open your eyes and make your heart come alive. That's the last point in the story. These guys had decided who Jesus was. They created the Jesus they wanted Jesus to be. He was a military Messiah, and his goal was to come and and squash the Roman empire and destroy them and make Israel the great the great kingdom of the world this was what they had understood this was what the messiah they wanted but that was never in god's heart it was not what he intended And we do the same thing. We create God in our own image. We we say, this is who I want God to be. This is how I want God to act. This is is the kind of God I want. So this is the God I believe in. Or this is the Jesus. We make Jesus into our own image. But God will never fit into our box. He refuses to be limited by our imagination and our desires and wants. And so here's Jesus. He has listened, and he has brought it all in and let them get it all out and listen to what he says next. It's in Luke 24, verse 25. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he does something that is amazing. He goes all the way from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. He takes all the prophecies of the coming Messiah, all of the things that God had said, and capitalizes all of them in one story. I wish I could have heard this. Don't you? Wouldn't you have loved to have heard the Old Testament sort of in 15 minutes from the voice of Jesus if somebody would have just turned the recorder on? And he takes all of the passages about the Messiah and he rolls it out and he says, you don't understand. The Messiah will come to teach us things about God that we had never understood. The Messiah was, to, was coming to heal the sick and to, and to uh, mend the brokenhearted and to help us to understand who God is and how we can know him and how we can be forgiven by him and, and how... We can love God and love others and forgive others and live a life full of of hope and purpose and meaning, but in order for it to happen, he has to die. There is no doubt that Jesus would have included Isaiah 53, one of the great passages about the coming of the Messiah, and you remember what it says, all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned each one into his own way. And the Lord has laid upon the Messiah all our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. And Jesus would have said, don't you understand the Messiah had to die? He's taking all of our sins. He's taking all the sins of the world. He had to die. But on the third day, remember what he said? He'll rise again. And he has. For the first time, they were beginning to see. Their eyes were beginning to be open. They were beginning to understand. Here is what salvation is. This is what the why this Messiah came. And as everything was coming together for them, suddenly they looked up and hey, they're home. It was the shortest time they had ever gone those seven miles to Emmaus, and Jesus acted like, "Okay, I'm I'll see you guys later. I'm on my way." No, you got to stay with us. No, you come in. We're gonna feed you dinner, and and we're not finished. We got questions, and so he comes into the house, and and they lay out the food, and he, he acts like the host. He takes over, and he starts to pray, and he is praying and blessing the food, and as he is. All of a sudden, their eyes are open, and they see, it's Jesus. They recognize it's Jesus, and poof, he's gone. I hate this part of the story. I mean, don't you? I've, I've read, every time I read it, I, I want it to turn out differently, and it just keeps turning out the same. Poof, he's gone. And I'm thinking, no, don't leave now. Stay. And notice the most powerful verse. Of the entire story, the most powerful verse, is Luke 24, verse 32. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? And for the first time they understood how they could come to know God as their personal Savior. They came to realize then, if I acknowledge my sin and I repent of my sin and I turn my heart to trust in Christ alone for my salvation, I will be saved forever. And what they came to understand that day is the same gospel, the same truth for us. If you come to acknowledge the truth about your life, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and turn from that sin and turn your heart by faith, to Jesus Christ he'll save you. I want to close all of this with this one story. It's the, it's the story of a member of our church, Roy Purie, and here is a picture of Roy. Right there. And listen to his story. Hello, my name is Roy Puri I was born into a Hindu family and I grew up with two devout Hindu parents. My sisters and I attended the temple on most Sundays, and my mom would do weekly pujas for our family. These are worship uh, expressions. When I went off to college, I felt like something was missing in my life. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then in June 1997, my life changed. My dad died suddenly and four months later, my mom almost was killed by a drunk driver. I felt my world was falling apart. I needed peace in my life, so I went back to my Hindu roots, but I couldn't find any peace. As I was trying out other religions, my sister told me about her Christian classmate who had been trying to talk to her about Jesus Christ, so I decided to go and find him. He invited me to a Bible study that was held on the campus and I went and I heard them quote John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. After hearing that I asked about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. And he said that Christ died for us so that we might have life. But this life was only for those who believed in him. That night I went home, I found a Bible that we had on our bookshelf, and I started to read it. And I asked my friend questions about things I didn't understand from the Bible. He encouraged me to find a church, and I did. I attended the early service before my mom woke up, so that she wouldn't know where I was. and Then on January the 1st, 2000, something inside of me came alive, and I gave my life to Jesus. I was baptized the next week, and when I told my family, they started to persecute me for my faith, but no matter how much my family rejected me, I responded back in love because I had an inner confidence that I had never experienced before. My family eventually came to respect my decision to follow Jesus Christ. And it's now been 18 years since I gave my life to Jesus, and I've never regretted it. This is Roy Puri, he's a member of our church and he told his story. What's yours? If you've never come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can. What this story of the resurrection tells us, Jesus is pursuing you, and he wants a relationship with you. And if by faith you'll turn from your sin and turn your heart to Jesus Christ, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, He'll save you. He'll come into your heart, and He'll change you from the inside out. Would you do that today? Let's pray together. Father, I thank You so much for the truth of Your Word and for this amazing story of the resurrection and for how it it so relates to us it so tells our story in so many ways and and for the hope for the hope that we have in you and father i pray that you would move in hearts today that people in this room that you're pursuing would say yes i give my heart to jesus christ today God, I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Now listen to me, but don't go. Listen to what I'm saying. There exists a love far greater than we will ever understand. side for ages I love that video, don't you? Wow, what a powerful story. Happy Easter, everybody. So glad you're here today. We had a Saturday night service, a service last night at uh, the Sugarland campus here. and it, we had about 2,000 at that service. The entire place was packed out. And I, it was just wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. But I started thinking last night, well, is there any, anybody going to be there on, on Easter Sunday? But here you are. And I'm so glad. Thank you for being, being here. Uh, they finally made the decision in 1948. 1948, they finally made the decision to destroy a beautiful little town called Flagstaff, Maine. They were going to flood that valley and put in a hydroelectric plant and so the town had to go. Now, that town was actually dated all the way back to the Revolutionary War, 175 years old and it was a beautiful, wonderful place, but they said, you got two years and those two years, either you move your house or you abandon your house, but you have to be gone. And Over the course of the next 24 months, the most unbelievable thing happened. That town literally deteriorated in front of their eyes. And it was left in shambles. John Maxwell really said it right when he said, Where there is no hope for the future, there's no power for the present. Hope is that powerful in our life. We've got to have hope. That's what gets us up in the morning. It is, it's what fuels our life. And there may be some in this room say, boy, my hope is gone. I want to talk to you about the subject of hope today. Eunice James, in her driveway, had a puddle of oil that had seeped out of the car. You've seen those puddles of oil right there in the driveway. And when the sun hit that puddle of oil just right, it created a prism and there was sort of a a, a rainbow, pretty rainbow that would go across that puddle. So her three-year-old little grandson was visiting, he was outside playing, and suddenly he burst into the house and he said, Nana, come fast, there's a dead rainbow in the driveway. (laughs) And maybe, maybe that's how you're feeling. Some things in your life, some hopes and dreams that you had, it seems like maybe hope is leaking out. I want to talk to you about the subject of hope. We need Easter. Easter is all about hope. And in fact, that is exactly what Basil Hume said when he made this statement. He said, the greatest gift of Easter is hope. It gives us a confidence in God and His ultimate triumph that nothing can shake. It is really true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ literally changed everything. Every man or woman that has ever come and talked to me and said to me, I don't believe in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every single one, not one of them, not one of these individuals had ever done any investigation of the evidences, of the evidences of the resurrection. They just made an assumption more of a, well, it's just too hard to believe, so I don't believe it. But even the greatest critics of Christianity and of the resurrection, when they study the evidences, they say that they are stunned at how strong and how convincing they are. And some of these critics come to know Christ as Savior and write books about, you cannot believe what I discovered when I went through the actual evidence. I want to talk to you about the resurrection, I guess you're surprised, of Jesus Christ today on Easter Sunday because the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that what he said about God, he said about himself and us and salvation, how do we come into relationship with God? The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that what he said was true. And so this morning, I want us to look at one of those stories of the resurrection, and it's found in the Gospel of Luke and chapter 24. Now before this story begins to play out, before it emerges, some things have already happened in the story. For instance, Mary Magdalene and some of the women, the scripture says, including Mary the mother of Jesus, have already gone to the tomb and they have seen that the stone is rolled away and they have gone into the tomb and they see there is nobody there. The tomb is totally empty. And before they leave that scene, they said, they testified that they saw collectively this angel that said to them, he is not here. He is risen as he said he would. They came back and they told the disciples, we went to the tomb, the stone was rolled away, it was empty, we saw this angel, and immediately Peter and John run for the tomb. They get there and the stone is rolled away and they look inside the tomb and no one's there. And they come back to the other disciples and they say, is it possible? Could this have actually happened? Two of the followers of Jesus who were not Two of the disciples, two of the apostles, just two of the followers of Jesus that were in the room said, No, I am not believing this. We're not buying this. In fact, I've had enough. And they packed up all their stuff and they said, We're going home. And they walked home to the seven miles to their house from Jerusalem. They said, We're done with this. And that's when this story actually begins. Now, before we get into the story, you need to know the other parts. Jesus did not just appear to a handful of people. The accounts are at least 500. Over 500 different people saw him alive. And second of all, he didn't just make an appearance or appearances on Easter Sunday. He made appearances for the next 40 days for the next 40 days, and he he uh, in, encountered the disciples over and over and over and over again, not just once or twice. And in those encounters, he explained to them what the, the resurrection was about, what the, the cross was about, what now God wanted them to do with all of this. And I will tell you, Even the critics against Christianity now admit it is obvious that the disciples believed that Jesus was alive because not any other explanation explains their behavior afterwards. Every single one of them went to their death. Martyrs' deaths only because they would not deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they couldn't deny it. So with all that in mind, Let's take a look at this story in Luke chapter 24 and beginning in verse 13. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you just a visitor in Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have been happening these days? Easter is not the time in which we look for God, it is the time that God comes looking for us. I love the story. There's so many incredible things that are unexpected that are happening in the story. And three things in particular that I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is simply this. That Jesus pursues us even when we're running the other way. Here is Jesus and he is... Suddenly appeared, here he is, and he's come alongside these two uh, followers of Christ as they're walking along. I'm totally convinced, and I, that they are not allowed to know who he is quite yet. I'm totally convinced that both of these individuals had been eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. I know that John was the only of one of the disciples that was around the cross because these were all wanted men, but there were other Christ followers there. Around that cross, and I believe these two were there. And they saw the beaten Jesus, whipped Jesus, abused Jesus. They saw what they did to him, and as they nailed his feet and his hands to the cross, they saw the agony that he was going through, the torture that he was experiencing, and they heard the words, It is finished. That phrase, it is finished, is only one Greek word, tetelestai, which means in the Greek, it is paid in full. Jesus knew what he was doing on the cross, he knew what this cross meant, he knew why he was there. And at the last of all of the ordeal, he said, tetelestai, it is paid in full. And then he died. These disciples saw it. They heard his words. They saw what happened. They saw he was dead. And when he was dead, when he died, you've got to imagine they were standing there thinking, come on, come on, perform a miracle, come down from the cross. But when he died, all their hope died with him. they were so discouraged they were so disappointed they were so downhearted they walked away they wanted to leave jerusalem i guarantee you but they couldn't leave jerusalem not for the next couple of days because it's the passover they were not allowed they had to stay there all through the weekend they hated every moment of it you got to imagine and there they were probably with other christ followers but they were enduring the weekend waiting for Sunday morning we're going to get out of here on Sunday morning but before they could get out of there on Sunday morning all of a sudden knock at the door there is Mary Magdalene and we you cannot believe what has happened and there goes J- Peter and John and then they come back could it be could he ha- be alive could he have risen from the dead and they said no we're not buying this we've had enough We're hurt enough. We're sad enough. We're not going any further. And they picked up everything. And on the road to Emmaus, we're going home, they went. What is amazing to me about the story is in verse 15, it says that Jesus drew near. The phrase he drew near was one Greek word that meant, that literally translated, he overtook them as though he were pursuing them. Because he was pursuing them. And by the way, he's pursuing several in this room. He's pursuing you. Maybe nobody else knows but you, but there are several in this room. In your heart, you have been distancing yourself from God for a while. Part maybe of it is you're so busy, your life's so full, you got so many things going on. I don't have time, God. I don't have time for you right now. I don't have time for church. I don't have time for you, God. And But one day when I do, I'll look you up. I'll check in when I get some time. But for others in this room, what is going on is you're just flat mad at God. You needed him to do something. You had already decided this is what I need. This is when I need it. This is how I need it. And he didn't do it. You felt like he didn't come through for you. You feel like he failed you. And in your heart, there is uh, an anger, maybe a bitterness that has begun to emerge in you. And the truth is, you are pushing God away. You've been for a while, and maybe nobody else knows. Maybe they do. But there's a distance, and you want it. And for others, it's just flat sin. There's some things that you are doing. There's some behavior that you are having, and you already know it's wrong. You already know it's wrong. And God's Spirit keeps speaking into your heart, don't do this. It's going to turn out badly for you. Don't do this. And you keep pushing Him away. And whatever the reason, you've been distancing yourself from Him. And here you are, Easter Sunday. Come on, I'm at church on Easter Sunday. Yeah, but Mama said you were going to be at church on Easter Sunday. So here you are. But you didn't really want to come. Really? But here's the truth. Jesus is pursuing you because he loves you too much to see you walk away. There is something that I want you to notice. These two people that are involved in the story, I love it. I love these two people that are involved. One day when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a conversation with these two. One of them is named Cleopas and the other is, who knows, somebody Now, there are some who say, well, that, the, the other person not named must be Cleopas's wife. Maybe that's true. Maybe not. We don't know. Well, the only thing we know about these two people is that they're in the inner circle. That's all we know. And we know they're in the inner circle because they know about the resurrection way early. And the only way they could have is if they were in the inner circle with these disciples. That's the only way they could have. That's all we know of them. And I'm going to tell you in a moment why I love it. There is in Florence, Italy, a museum. I've never been there, but I'm told a museum. In fact, I looked it up. There is a museum of the Renaissance, of art, of the Renaissance period in Florence, Italy. And apparently it's just a wonderful place. All the great artists of the Renaissance period, all the great artists, the most beautiful paintings that you could ever see in your life, all that talent, and all of it has been brought together into that one museum, and you go from room to room, from wall to wall, and you see the most beautiful art. I love art, and I, you, many of you do too, and you would go into there, and you'd want to stay a long time just to see the talent of these individuals, But when you get to the last wall, you're shocked because in the last wall right there, the only thing on the wall is an empty frame. It's just an empty frame. And then you're told you can actually go behind the wall and put your face through the hole in the wall into that frame (laughs) so that the frame is you. And the whole idea is this. And now you are part of the story of the Renaissance. And that's the idea. And when I see these two guys, these two individuals, and especially the who knows person, I sort of feel like that that's the invitation to go behind the wall and we can put ourselves into this story. And here's the reason why I say it. When it comes to Peter and John and the other disciples, I have a hard time identifying with these guys. They're out of my league. In fact, go down 10 more leagues and they're still out of that league for me. I'm just, I don't relate to Peter. Are you kidding, John? But this story sort of lifts me up because... I can see myself in this story, Cleopas and whoever, and what this says to me is that Jesus didn't just appear to the big guys, but he appeared to the nobodies. In fact, if you think about it, he spent more time with these two on the road to Emmaus, more actual clocking in time than he spent with the disciples on Easter Sunday, And I look at that and I say, what that tells me is I actually matter to God and so do you. And here's what I want to say to you. Okay, there is this separation between you and God and there is some justification you feel in your heart for it. But I want you to know that Jesus today is pursuing you and that you matter to him. And that he wants a relationship with you. The story not only is revealing that kind of thing, but the answers the question of why does he want a relationship with me. And, and it's this, that Jesus wants to be the hope of your life and of your future. Listen to what happens now in the story. Jesus now has encountered these two. And he asks the question, what has happened in Jerusalem that has made you all upset. And I thought about the story and I thought, why didn't he just say, hey guys, it's me. I'm Jesus. Why didn't he do that? Why did he go through this? No, he didn't do that. What he did was say, what's going on in your life? What's made you all upset? He has invited them to open their heart. And they do. It pours out like a flood. And they begin to tell him how disappointed they are, how discouraged they are, how disappointed they are in Jesus. And they don't know, they're telling Jesus. And here is the Prince of Heaven, the Son of God, the Lord of all of the universe, and very humbly and patiently, he's listening to all their objections and all their complaints as they explain all their misconceptions of who Jesus was to be. Listen to what they say in verse 21, Luke 24, 21. We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel, but all that's gone because Jesus is dead. What they didn't understand is the only way they could be redeemed is by Jesus dying. The whole the word redeem means to buy back. And the concept is this in Scripture, that we have so given our heart over to sin that, that, that we have now become enslaved to it. And that we must be bought back from the enslavement of our own sin. And the only way to do it is to pay the price for that sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. There is a penalty to sin. And the only way that we could pay the penalty is with our own death Are the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, Jesus dying for us. And the Bible says that God took all my sin, all your sin, all of our sin, and placed our sin on Jesus. And what Jesus was doing on that cross was dying for my sin. My sin nailed him to the cross, and so did yours. And what they didn't understand is, is that if he didn't die, they wouldn't then have any hope. But they didn't understand that. And so, here they are. They are so downcast that Jesus is dead. And right there standing with them, talking to them, is Jesus. Do you see the irony of this story? And here's what I'm asking. To see the irony going on in yours. Because... We have some of the same issues. We we have things that happen that we're not happy about that we are so disappointed with. It didn't turn out the way I wanted. I had this whole plan put together. I had this whole thing that I wanted to have done. It didn't happen. God, what is wrong with you? Didn't you understand the right thing? God, you let me down. There is a... There was a a poem a few decades ago, and some of you will recognize and others never have heard it. There was a poem that became very popular a few decades ago, and this is Resurrection Sunday, so I'd like to resurrect the poem, if you don't mind. And I'm going to ask you if you would just, even if you've heard it, act like you haven't, okay? (laughs) And for many of you, you've never have. And listen to what it says. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed that he was walking along the beach with the Lord And across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. And when the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand, and he noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. And he also noticed it happened at the very lowest and saddest times of his life. This really bothered him. And he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said if I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I've noticed during the most troublesome times of my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand. How could you have left me when I needed you the most? And the Lord replied, my son, my precious child, I would never leave you. During the times of trial and suffering, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then I carried you. And if the fog would lift... And that, that which now seems so, so wrong and so not understandable, and I don't get this at all. If the fog would lift, if the veil would be taken away, if somehow we were able to open the curtain and look what's on the other side, we would see there is God. He has not left us and forsaken us. He has been with us and moved and cared for us and carried us. Every step we had this plan. This is the way it ought to be. This is what I want you to do. And he said, I actually have a better plan. And I'm asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust me. But between now and when the fog lifts, okay, go ahead. Tell him everything you're feeling. Tell him all the hurts and misconceptions and go ahead and tell him. Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. I want you to remember this. I want you to take this home with you. If there's anything you get, get this. Jesus is pursuing you. And when hope seems gone, know this. You have a Savior who comes down into your path and walks beside you and listens to your broken dreams and your lost hopes. And I'm asking you this morning, would you reopen your heart? And if you reopen your heart, you will discover that Jesus can open your eyes and make your heart come alive, that's the last point in the story. These guys had decided who Jesus was. They created the Jesus they wanted Jesus to be. He was a military Messiah, and his goal was to come and and squash the Roman empire and destroy them and make Israel the great the great kingdom of the world this was what they had understood this was what the messiah they wanted but that was never in god's heart it was not what he intended and we do the same thing. We create God in our own image. We, we say, this is who I want God to be. This is how I got, want God to act. This is, this is the kind of God I want. So this is the God I believe in. Or this is the Jesus. The, we make Jesus into our own image. But God will never fit into our box. He refuses to be limited by our imagination and our desires and wants. And so here's Jesus. He has listened, and he has brought it all in and let them get it all out and listen to what he says next. It's in Luke 24, verse 25. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he does something that is amazing. He goes all the way from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. He takes all the prophecies of the coming Messiah, all of the things that God had said, and capitalizes all of them in one story. I wish I could have heard this. Don't you? Wouldn't you have loved to have heard the Old Testament sort of in 15 minutes from the voice of Jesus if somebody would have just turned the recorder on? And he takes all of the passages about the Messiah and he rolls it out and he says, you don't understand, the Messiah will come to teach us things about God that we had never understood. The Messiah was, to, was coming to heal the sick and to, and to uh, mend the brokenhearted and to help us to understand who God is and how we can know Him and how we can be forgiven by Him and, and how we can love God and love others and forgive others and live a life full of of hope and purpose and meaning. But in order for it to happen, he has to die. There is no doubt that Jesus would have included Isaiah 53, one of the great passages about the coming of the Messiah. And you remember what it says, all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned each one into his own way. And the Lord has laid upon the Messiah all our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his stripes we are healed. And Jesus would have said, don't you understand the Messiah had to die? He's taking all of our sins. He's taking all the sins of the world. He had to die. But on the third day, remember what he said? He'll rise again. And he has. For the first time, they were beginning to see. Their eyes were beginning to be open. They were beginning to understand. Here is what salvation is. This is what the why this Messiah came. And as everything was coming together for them, suddenly they looked up and they're home. It was the shortest time they had ever gone those seven miles to Emmaus, and Jesus acted like, "Okay, I'm I'll see you guys later. I'm on my way." No, you got to stay with us. No, you come in. We're gonna feed you dinner, and and we're not finished. We got questions, and so he comes into the house, and and they lay out the food, and he, he acts like the host. He takes over, and he starts to pray, and he is praying and blessing the food, and as he is. All of a sudden, their eyes are open, and they see, it's Jesus. They recognize it's Jesus, and poof, he's gone. I hate this part of the story. I mean, don't you? I've, I've read, every time I read it, I, I want it to turn out differently, and it just keeps turning out the same. Poof, he's gone. And I'm thinking, no, don't leave now. Stay. And notice the most powerful verse of the entire story, the most powerful verse, is Luke 24, verse 32. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? And for the first time they understood how they could come to know God as their personal Savior. They came to realize then, If I acknowledge my sin and I repent of my sin and I turn my heart to trust in Christ alone for my salvation, I will be saved forever. And what they came to understand that day is the same gospel, the same truth for us. If you come to acknowledge the truth about your life, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and turn from that sin and turn your heart by faith, to Jesus Christ he'll save you. I want to close all of this with this one story. It's the it's the story of a member of our church Roy Puri and here is a picture of Roy right there. And listen to his story. Hello, my name is Roy Puri. I was born into a Hindu family and I grew up with two devout Hindu parents. My sisters and I attended the temple on most Sundays, and my mom would do weekly pujas for our family. These are worship uh, expressions. When I went off to college, I felt like something was missing in my life. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then in June 1997, my life changed. My dad died suddenly. And four months later, my mom almost was killed by a drunk driver. I felt my world was falling apart. I needed peace in my life. So I went back to my Hindu roots, but I couldn't find any peace. As I was trying out other religions, my sister told me about her Christian classmate who had been trying to talk to her about Jesus Christ. So I decided to go and find him. He invited me to a Bible study that was held on the campus, and I went, and I heard them quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. After hearing that, I asked about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. And he said that Christ died for us so that we might have life. But this life was only for those who believed in him. That night I went home, I found a Bible that we had on our bookshelf, and I started to read it. And I asked my friend questions about things I didn't understand from the Bible. He encouraged me to find a church, and I did. I attended the early service before my mom woke up, so that she wouldn't know where I was. And then on January the 1st, 2000, something inside of me came alive. And I gave my life to Jesus. I was baptized the next week. And when I told my family, they started to persecute me for my faith. But no matter how much my family rejected me, I responded back in love because... I had an inner confidence that I had never experienced before. My family eventually came to respect my decision to follow Jesus Christ. And it's now been 18 years since I gave my life to Jesus, and I've never regretted it. This is Roy Puri. He's a member of our church And he told his story. What's yours? If you've never come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can. What this story of the resurrection tells us Jesus is pursuing you, and He wants a relationship with you. And if by faith you'll turn from your sin and turn your heart to Jesus Christ and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, He'll save you. He'll come into your heart, and He'll change you from the inside out. Would you do that today? Let's pray together. Father, I thank You so much for the truth of Your Word and for this amazing story of the resurrection and for how it it so relates to us. It so tells our story in so many ways. And, and for the hope, for the hope that we have in you. And Father, I pray that you would move in hearts today That people in this room that you're pursuing would say, Yes, I give my heart to Jesus Christ today.